Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. This is the word of our God. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus stepped out on the land, there he met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard bound with chains and shackles, but he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also, who had seen it, told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell What great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. So far in the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for such a powerful account three times testified of in your word by witnesses. Lord, may we receive this, your word, with faith and humility, and may we receive from this, your word, assurance and encouragement this day in our King Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Last week I made a comment as we were looking at the account of the wind and the waves that we need to be uh, careful when we think of demons. 
Uh, we need to be careful to have a balanced biblical understanding because uh, there are some Christians who go so far that everything that happens that they see that is negative around them must be Satan attacking them. And so even the wind and the waves, oh, it's Satan attacking. And I cautioned us last week that that's giving Satan too much credit. He isn't God. He doesn't have power over the wind and the waves. And Job, he has to get permission to make use of things like whirlwinds and the wind. Now, there is only one master of the wind and the waves, and we saw him last week. That's one side of the balanced view of demons. The other side of it is the balance of realizing that Satan is, as I already said when we were looking at Revelation already, uh, Satan's real. And demons are real, and they are active and powerful. Satan is real, but we need to not underestimate him. But neither ought we to sit around fearing him if we are true believers. And I think that's why this passage is so powerful. It's so wonderful because it it tells us, I, I think if I had to give it a theme, this account teaches us that Satan's power is real, and yet there is no real contest. We need to walk away from the text with that thought. Satan's power and demonic power is real, but there's no real contest. The text shows us the type of power Satan has, how terrible it can be, and yet it assures us from despair because Jesus wins. Jesus doesn't just win at the end of history. Jesus wins every time. There's no battle he loses. There's nothing that he fails to see accomplished the way he desires it to be accomplished. Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but he is not ever the winner. Now, Revelation 12 showed us that that makes them all the more dangerous in some ways in in this life, right? Knowing his time is short. I'll, I'll paraphrase. Knowing he is the ultimate loser. He's trying to destroy what he can. But Jesus wins. Let's look at this passage and see the power of demons at work as we look at what's going on in this man. Children, remembering that Jesus wins at the end of this passage, he wins every time. The power of demons. We see this as we look at this man, this demon possessed this man. And uh, and the culture around, whether they realized there was a demon involved or not, saw a man they couldn't control. There's real power here. This demon is, perhaps we could say, ultra-powerful. We've seen in Luke that Jesus is going around casting out demons all over the place before this point. We've seen it multiple times. So why so much attention to this story? I think one reason is... um, to show us the extent both of demonic power and Christ's power. We've seen many demons cast out with just one sentence, and he spoke and the demons 
were cast out. But we might, we might think, well, how, how many demons would it then take? Like those old jokes, you know, how many short, fat men does it take to screw in a light bulb? Or, or something like that. We might think, how many demons does it take to defeat Christ? He keeps defeating them individually. That's great. But what if they ganged up? And here's our answer with this story. Here's legion. It keeps flipping between singular and plural in this passage. Here's legion. That's his name. Why? Because there were many demons in this man all at once. You'll recall that Christ in another place says that one who has had a demon and the demon goes out from that person, but if that person remains spiritually dead, spiritually empty, the demon will come back and bring seven friends. Well, how many is legion? I think we can think about this with two things. The name legion itself makes us think of the Roman military in Jesus' own day, doesn't it? That was a, a, an army under a general, was referred to as a, a legion. There's a military battle going on here. Surely this, this, this whole army will be able to take out Jesus. Maybe a whole army? The other thing with legion, we ask how many is that specifically? Mark tells us, that when they were cast out into the pigs, 2,000 pigs jumped into the lake. So I think we could, we could presume that at least 2,000 demons were inside this man all at once. Legion is at least 2,000 demons. What will this battle look like? Well, certainly Legion is powerful. We see his power is real. There is no binding him. The community puts him in shackles and chains. They lock him up in the jail cell. They have strong guards at the doors. And what happens? It sounds like multiple times. It sounds like this is something they keep trying to do. And every time, the shackles break. The door is thrown open. The guards are pushed aside. And this man goes out into the wilderness. This is power. Power. Mark emphasizes for us that the crying out which this, this demon-possessed man did was constant. He uses the word always crying out in the wilderness. Can you imagine the terror of living in that community? Day and night, Mark says, this man whom chains cannot hold guards cannot subdue, is screaming outside your city gates. Imagine going to bed at night. There's power here and there's terror here. Which makes something we read later in the text a little ironic, doesn't it? When this man is no longer crying out, then the people are afraid? Re really? Seems like they have their priorities backwards with fear. But more on that later. Here, this demon-possessed man crying out constantly outside their gates in the wilderness. And you know you cannot 
stop him. That's frightening. It's frightening. It's also self-destructive. We see the power of demons is self-destructive. He goes out into the wilderness. Wilderness, outside of community. We see a man here who no longer has friendships. No longer is with his family. No longer has people to embrace. No longer has all the things which community provides. But it's worse than that because we're also told that in the wilderness there's a specific place he goes to. He goes out into the wilderness to the cemetery, the tombs. And that, according to ceremonial law, made him unclean. Not that having demons in him hadn't already made him unclean, of course. But we're being shown the symbolism here. That he is not only out of fellowship with other men and women. He is out of fellowship with God. There is isolation. The demon doesn't bring joyous fellowship. He brings solitude. Solitude. A a life that might as well be a living death, right? If you live naked in a cemetery with no friends, what is life? It's also self-destructive seen in the cutting. He's cutting himself. This is again one of those things that Mark tells us is always. Mark says he, he has stones and with stones he cut himself always, day and night. Realize he's not cutting himself and then running to the hospital, getting the proper treatment on these cuts, antibiotics, bandages, then going back out and cutting himself again later. That, That would be bad enough. But he's always cutting himself and never getting treatment. Imagine what his body must be like. Realize, again, verse 27 told us he has been this way for a long time. No doubt his body is quite broken and decaying. And again, he's crying out. Is that agony or hysterics? Probably yes. Great pain and insanity. power of demons here is very clear, isn't it? It's very powerful. But, you know, I think there's two things that we need to tie to that, though. One is this, that this is Satan's own experience. Uh, We've been told by Hollywood, actually ever since the Middle Ages and probably before, we've had these depictions of Satan not experiencing any of these things I've just listed, but rather being the the torturer, which, of course, he is in this context here. Demons are torturing this man. But, But as, well, if we think about hell, for example, as Satan being the king of hell, taking great glee and joy out of torturing everyone else, but that's not what the Bible presents at all. 
Here is one who had been an honored angel. Of all the angels, seemingly two were the most honored at the feet of King Jesus before the world, before, uh, before the fall of angels. Satan was one of them, Michael the other. And that wasn't enough. So he made a bid for the throne. And he failed. And ever since being cast out, Satan and his demons experience all of these things. Separation from God. And separation from friends. The demons aren't friends with each other, even if they work together. I think Lewis got that right in, in uh, Screwtape Letters, if you've ever read it. None of those demons like each other. They're all waiting for the others to get crushed. They're all looking for opportunity to be ahead and above the others. There's isolation. There's a loss of friendship and fellowship. And there's torment. The, these demons here are afraid of Christ. They're, they're in quite tormented state even when Christ was on earth. But the scriptures make it very clear torment is also what awaits them. Matthew 25, 41 declares that the everlasting fire, Christ said, was prepared for the devil and his angels. Satan won't be a king torturing other people in hell. He's just another tortured soul in hell. The other thing I want us to connect with the power of demons here isn't just that the demons experience all of this themselves and therefore because they're, they're experiencing this, they hate everyone else and want everyone else to experience the torture they have brought on their own heads. The other thing we need to tie to this also, though, is how much this description of the power of demons over this man reflects the power of sin in us. I was reading an article not too long ago, I believe from the, the Gospel Coalition website, uh, uh, talking about is demon possession something that we're seeing more of in our culture today? It's something that, um, well, Bill, Bill and, and Rich and Jim know I, I've thought about this a lot the last several years because of several things I've been brought into as a pastor in other congregations, other people asking for my help and, and prayers and advice. And, uh, and I, I think it shouldn't surprise us. In a culture that has rejected truth, not just the gospel, but the idea of truth altogether. A, a culture that glories in the occult. We've just gone through October. The things aren't even taken down in everyone's yards yet. It, to deny that we are a culture that adores the occult is lying to ourselves. But of course, it's much more than just decorations people put up and laugh at. It's much more than that, isn't it? The occult is growing. Its obsession is rising in our culture. As well as, even in evangelicalism, a, a, a laziness and a flippancy about things like 
tarot cards and and reading your whatever scope. My mind just went blank, and it's because I don't read them. Horoscope, thank you, but whatever it is, uh, right? All these things. Should it surprise us? That in a culture where we're throwing the doors open and saying, come on in, we're empty. That Jesus would be right. That demons would come and, and take advantage of that. Yeah, I, I think we should expect more. And I've been shocked at multiple, the, the most conservative, straight-laced, old-fashioned, old-schooled, non-hysterical pastors I know. And I've been engaging with them about things that were we're seeing and experiencing it it is if not for christ terrifying we should expect more of this in the days ahead unless unless revival comes but here's something really important that gospel coalition article started with i loved it i think i yelled out hallelujah as i was reading it i was so happy the first paragraph he was talking about is demon possession, demon oppression, and demon work uh, being more evident in our day and age. Should we expect it? And he was concluding yes. But in his first paragraph, he said, but let us never forget that first and foremost, the gospel is not good news about demons or demonic warfare but that the gospel is good news about the salvation we need from our own sin. This passage is showing us the power of demons, but let's not forget that even if the demons never, ever, ever came into contact with your life, your sin leaves you isolated and separated from fellowship with God and it's the cause of your, of your relationships broken with fellow men and women. And it will lead in the end, not only in this life, many times to your own suffering because of what you've done and you've brought on yourself in sin, but also in eternity, it will lead to agony. And so in Matthew twenty-five forty-one, Jesus talks about hell and he wraps all three of these together. He wraps together demonic power, Satan himself, and sinners. Then he said unto the sinners on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The power of Satan. The power of demons. But the text doesn't just talk about that, does it? In fact, throwing all of that at us, there's such a simple, simple statement of Christ's power. Jesus stepped off the boat, and he was met, and the demon fell at his feet and cried out, don't torture us. The demon army doesn't first attack him. It can. These demons who long ago were in the presence of this 
one before he became a man, this one sitting on the throne and had chosen to rebel against him, they recognize him now. And all they can do is fall groveling pathetic at his feet. The closest thing to uh, uh, challenging his authority that they can pull off is a, is a begging for a negotiated surrender. Oh, of course we surrender, but don't make us go straight to hell. Let us go into these pigs first. The power of Jesus. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And on that day, Legion was forced to its knees. Power that has to beg shouldn't fill you with terror if the one to whom it has to beg is your Lord and King. If the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, what can Satan do? Notice about Jesus' power that it reverses. Remember Satan's power, isolation, separation, and agony? What does Jesus' power do? Uh, he, he has compassion. He has compassion for this man above the swine. 2,000 pigs? Sure! That's how much compassion he has for this man. That's a, that's a lot of bacon. The, the local economy is going to be wrecked. We'll come back to the local economy in a moment. But it's going to be wrecked by this. But who cares, says Jesus. That soul is suffering. Isn't that the Savior you want? Isn't that the Savior you need? Your soul is worth more than 2,000 pigs. Praise God. He brings this man from a living death back to the living. Notice what they find when they come to investigate. The community found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting, not running, not escaping, not breaking things, but sitting calmly. He's now clothed again. And he's sitting at Jesus' feet in his right mind. And I don't think it's stepping outside of what's appropriate to assume one thing also. That the Jesus who for eight chapters of Luke so far has gone around healing the most broken sick people. I think it would be absurd for us to think that they found this man sitting at Jesus' feet, calm and clothed, and still bleeding and decaying from his cuts. They found the man healed. Scarred, perhaps, but healed. And in his right mind, brought back to fellowship with God, brought back to life, brought back to health, and given peace. Not just peace in that moment either. I want you to think about those pigs again. We could overlook this very quickly, I think. 
But what a source of assurance dead pigs could be. They're about to ask Jesus to leave. Here's this man. You've had these demons in you. What would you think if the one who cast the demons out left? Wouldn't you spend every night terrified that it could happen again? But Jesus, by permitting those demons to go into those pigs, and then those pigs committing suicide off the edge of the cliff, into Galilee, far below, splash, dead. But you know what happens to things when they're dead in water, right? They, they don't stay down. I, I want you to imagine not just the sight, but the smell over the next several days. Two thousand dead pigs being fished out of the water. But what a great source of assurance if you were that man. Or anyone else who was afraid maybe Christ cast those demons out of this man, but they're going to be looking for a new home now. No. Do you smell that? That's the dead demons. They cannot come back. What a source of assurance. But you know, God gives us an even greater source of assurance. We who live after Pentecost. A source of assurance that this man, if he lived for several more years till the day of Pentecost, would have also had with us. It's the assurance that our houses aren't empty any longer. 1 John 4, 4 declares, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, if you have had faith in Jesus Christ, repented of your sins, looked to Him alone for salvation, His Spirit is dwelling within you, no demon can ever possess you. They might attack you, they might oppress you, but they cannot possess you. And even if they do those other things, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Two thousand pigs testify so. Well, there are two responses to Christ then in this passage. The first is so discouraging, isn't it, to read? It's disappointing. The response of the community Again, I I already alluded to this a little bit. Here's this community that has been tortured by constant cries from a superman they cannot control for a long time. And they become afraid when they see him sane sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, in one sense, we could say even if you were terrified before you might have a godly fear now. Here's one who's more powerful. That, that would be a good thing. But that's not what they have, is it? Christ is more powerful than the demons. We've got to get him out of here. Again, it's not just demon possession that separates us from God, is it? 
It's our own sin. Why were there pigs in this part of Israel? Have you ever thought about that? Pigs, swine, aren't kosher. What are they doing there? Well, this region was uh, referred to in Mark as Decapolis, Deca, 10, like decade, polis, city, Decapolis, 10 cities. This is a region where the Greeks and the Romans had developed uh, some major cities along the king's highway. And so there, there were a lot of Greek influences here, but it was still technically part of that region where a lot of Jews lived. So what are pigs doing here? If they're being used for worship, for sacrifices, we know they aren't being used for the sacrifices to God. So there might be pagan, Roman, Greek gods being worshipped here. Or they could be used for food, which again isn't kosher. Yet, in the book of Acts, God says to Peter, it's all kosher now. But at this point, it wasn't. So whether it was that they were worshiping other gods or worshiping the true God in the wrong way, which doesn't please him, or just enjoying bacon for breakfast, all of that would have spoken to their not being in fellowship with Yahweh God. It's not just the demons that cast you out of fellowship with God. Your own sin can do that. And here, Christ not only removes the demons, he removes a source of temptation from them. But it hurts their local economy, doesn't it? Or it calls on them to change their lives. They would rather live with their sin, even if they see this man tortured and their own children terrified at night, then give up their sin and live under the reign of such a compassionate king. Isn't that the saddest part of this story? And so often it's true of us, isn't it? So often we would rather continue in sin than bow the knee before King Jesus and know the peace that he alone can give. Then there's the man. There's the man. He's been given life. And all that he desires in that life is to be with his Savior. House Forget it. Family, I can live without that. I want to be with Christ. Rejected with him? Sure. I'll leave with you. That's all he wants. Christ calls on this man to stay, though, instead. To go home. That which his sin and the demons had removed him from, go back to it. But as an ambassador. Mark, in in fact, presents us beautifully with how Christ phrases this 
in verse 39 of uh, Luke 8:39 uh, is expanded on a little bit by Mark in Mark 5:19. There we read, "Go home to your friends," and that could be translated neighbors, and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how He has had compassion on you. So here's this man. He's commissioned, go tell everyone what God has done for you. And we see two things. One, Mark tells us that he was to go to his neighbors. And what does he go to? The whole city. This man had not heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. But he got it, didn't he? Who is my neighbor? All of these people, people who couldn't help me, people who rejected me, people who rejected Christ, who is my neighbor, I'm going to go to them all. In fact, there's even some wording in Mark that could indicate he went throughout all of the ten cities, the whole region, telling them. Then there's the other thing. He's told to tell what God has done. And did you notice? Each of the Gospels emphasize this very powerfully. Christ says, go say what God has done. And so he goes and tells what Jesus has done for him. For this man, he gets it. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the only way to the Father. And he's the only way for reconciliation with the Father to be brought about in saving us from our enemies. How do we respond to Christ? How do we respond to Christ? We should start first with if you've never trusted in Christ. How will you respond to Christ? He does call on you to leave much behind. But what he gives you is peace, surpassing all understanding. And freedom from the tyranny of the devil and from the power of your own sin. Trust in Christ. Trust is the first thing also. If you are already a believer, how do you respond to Christ? Trust. I've said a lot of things about demonic power today, even indicating that you may in the years to come see more terrifying aspects of it. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. What do you do? Trust in Christ. Satan is roaring, prowling like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In Christ, he cannot devour you. And when he tempts you to think that he can, remind him, Satan, you have no authority here. This house belongs to Christ. The strong man lives in me. There's no room for you. It's also what you ought to say when you're tempted to sin. 
Sin. You have no authority over me. I belong to Jesus. He rules in my life. Trust in Christ. Along the lines of what I just said, the second response we ought to have to Christ is rejection. Rejection of sin's claim on us. Remember Romans 6. We've been set free from sin. We are no longer slaves of sin. Paul says, so why do you keep acting like you are? Why do you keep going back to it? No, you've been set free from sin, so reject it. Reject it. Third, submission. This passage teaches us we need to have submission to our King Jesus regarding what? Regarding our whole life. This man wanted to go somewhere else. He wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus has the authority to say, no, you stay here. Stay here. Live and testify of me in a people that has already rejected me. His experience doesn't sound too different from what you're called to, does it? Oh, we would long to be with Jesus today. Lord, quickly come. But he's called on you to live in this culture at this time. Whatever culture you think in the past would have been better, you're probably deceiving yourselves a little. But nonetheless, you aren't called to that anyway. You're called to live here and to express the gospel. Submit your life, your job, your family, your home, time and place, all to him. And that includes then, fourth, living the commandments of God. Do you see what's wrong in this community? They don't love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They love their their economy better, their bacon better, their job better, whatever the thing is that they're doing with these pigs, they love it better. They don't love God first. And that leads to something. A lack of compassion for this man who had been so tortured. Why isn't the champagne being pulled out? Why isn't the confetti being thrown in the air? He's sane again. He's alive again. The one who was lost has been restored. No. No love of God. Failure to love neighbor. But you're called to something else. You're called to the love of God that works itself out in the love of neighbor. And what does that look like? It looks like the commandments of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. Do not covet. All of these things. Christ setting you free means living the commandments out as part of your ambassadorial witness to this pagan culture in which you live. Do you eagerly proclaim Christ and that your life is found only in him? Jesus wins. Always. 
Jesus wins. Do you celebrate that?